If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg, bringing you an incredible episode with Liana Downey, who is an expert in helping leaders drive social change. So today, we are going to be talking about strategic planning and greater impact. I am so excited to have Liana back on the podcast again. We had her on, I think, probably in the first 50 episodes to talk about her book, Mission Control, how nonprofits and governments can focus, achieve more, and change the world. I will share with you listeners that I first read this book right as I was starting to launch my consulting practice, and I was doing strategic planning, and I already had a plan and an outline about how I would be doing planning. And I took two or three big things from her book that have been instrumental in helping me really work with organizations around creating great strategic plans. And it's one of the reasons why whenever we can get Liana on our podcast, we want to because she has really some incredible information to share with nonprofit leaders. She is herself a thought leader. Just so you know, she led McKinsey's nonprofit and sustainability practice. She currently is the executive director of Liana Downing Associates, a boutique strategic advisory firm that is serving nonprofits and governments in the United States and Australia. And she has been doing that for more than a decade through Liana Downing and Associates. I've already mentioned she wrote the book Mission Control. If you've not read it, it is a must read. And in addition to that, as I've kind of maybe already shared with you, she has been on this podcast before, has been instrumental in so many, in so much of the work that so many people do. Finally, listeners, I also have to fess up to something. You know that we batch record the podcast. And this is the last episode we're recording today. And you also know that usually the last episode is the episode that where we let it all hang out. Might be a few more mistakes. I might 
trip myself over some words and those kind of things. But I will share with you, as you know, if you're a longtime listener, the last episode that we record in any day is always the best episode. So fasten your seatbelts for a great conversation with Leanna Downey. Hey, Leanna, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Dolph. It's fantastic to be back. Thank you. And thank you for all those kind words as well. Well, thank you. And I know that I am sitting in Atlanta and you are sitting in Sydney, Australia right now. So thank you for coordinating the time zones to actually make this work out. No, it's a pleasure to be here. I was saying earlier, it's a very rainy day here in in Sydney and right across the state I live in. There's a lot of flooding. So it's it's a pleasure to be connecting and I hope it's not too noisy with some rain in the background. Right now, we don't hear anything. But uh, I know beforehand, I'd already shared with you once again, just how instrumental your work has been in my work. And I'm so grateful for the ways that you contribute to the nonprofit sector. I thought we might get started by talking about in the strategic planning process, in that process of when you're trying to figure out what you're going to do and how you're going to do it, how do you get the right people around the table and how do you know they're the right people? Oh, Dolph, I'm so glad you asked that question because I think it is such an important question. And I think so many organizations tend to have too few people involved in the strategic planning process. Um, One of the things that's really interesting to me, sometimes when you write something, you put a little thing in there and you think it's, it's kind of obvious But there's something in the book that so many people have come up to me and said, that was the bit of the book that I really took away. And I talk about um, making sure the people who are the most difficult people in your kind of networks are actually at the table for those conversations. So, you know, the thorns in your side. Uh, I'll give you a recent example. So um, while I've been running Leanna Downing Associates for a long time, I took some time out and uh, took on a senior leadership role in, in the state that I am here in education. And as part of that process, we led a statewide process to develop um, a disability strategy for, for students, for the 800,000 students in our care. And I wanted to do it the way I believe all strategic planning should be done, which is it's a really collaborative process. You really are engaging People who are most impacted by your work, your clients should have a really clear voice in what you're doing. And anyone who is really upset about what you're doing or thinks that you're doing it the wrong way should also really be part of that process. And I had at the time um, the, the political leader as well as my boss say, you know, you don't kind of really mean that they'll be at the table, do you? And in particular, we had somebody who was suing the department actually Um, And I was like, no, absolutely. They are the people who need to be at the table. And there was a lot of kind of discomfort, but I thought, you know, I know this works, so we're going to do it anyway. And the reason I'm a really big advocate for that is that in my experience, the people um, who are most passionately stirred up about what you're doing have thought really deeply about it. Um, And they often have... um, really valid frustration. So for example, in this case, the, the fellow who was suing the department was doing so because he felt, I think pretty reasonably, that we were not doing enough to hold people to account for um, inappropriate uh, and potentially dangerous uses of restrictive practices for mm. some of our students with more severe needs. Um, so obviously a very emotive and complex issue, but by really making sure we were asking him what was he upset about what did he think we needed to do differently 
And by being open to receiving that criticism and feedback, we learned a lot about um, what we needed to do better. So I am a big fan of bringing people to the table who have yeah, very divergent views. The more people you have in the conversation, the better your answer will be, especially when you're addressing really complex challenges like so many of us are in this sector. You need different brains at the table. You need different perspectives. Um, yeah. I, I, what, how do you find the question of who needs to be at the table, what's your experience being? So it's interesting. Often the way I do strategic planning will develop, we'll, we'll put together a work group and the work group then does a lot of the environmental scan and actually talks to a lot of stakeholders. And so typically what I will say to an organization is your work group should probably include, should probably have eight, no more than 10 people, but eight, nine people in it should probably be primarily board members, obviously the chief executive, maybe one more staff member, and then a couple of community members that have an important voice to share. Maybe they're prospective board members one day, maybe they're not. But I'll also say then that what we end up doing is brainstorming because we now have this core group of people that can go out and do surveys and interviews, we'll brainstorm key stakeholders. So clients, you know, community members, activists, funders, etc. And I'll share with you, I was working with this one group recently, Liana, and they brainstormed 148 key stakeholders, which is ambitious. Most groups brainstorm 70 to 100. But in that process, there were a couple of people where at one point, the chief executive said, oh, well, if we talk to this person, all they're going to do is complain. And much like you, I was like, oh, well, that's the person we definitely need to talk to. If for no other reason than if this plan moves forward and they don't feel like they have a voice, you know that all they're going to do is complain about this plan. That's exactly right. I mean, people, people will never be with you if they haven't been part of the journey in some way, shape or form. And I love what, you know, the differentiation there, because when you think about strategic planning is kind of there's decision-making, but there's work that needs to be done to get the right set of inputs, right? I, I, you know, I talk about in the book, get the facts. And I'm really, so many people rush into a strategic planning process with, you know, a whiteboard and some snacks and kind of, you know, well, we've got the time, let's sit down and do it. But in fact, you know, a good strategic plan, is always informed by a good understanding of what's happening in the environment, um, who else is doing what, and what do our clients think about the services that we're providing? I think, you know, you and I have both talked about clients, but it's it's fascinating to me how many organisations I've worked with who, when you say to them, we want you to go and talk to your clients, and this is true for the nonprofit sector, it's also true for the government sector, and they will often be really reluctant to do so. And, you know, when you probe why, it's often because they're concerned that the act of asking them is going to mismanage their expectations somehow. But in my experience, um, and again, I'll use this sort of disability strategy just because it was a, a big, comprehensive and recent process. So getting everybody together in the room, Part of what you can do by the, through that process is you can actually manage expectations. So a lot of what we were talking about was we were giving people insight into the constraints in which we were operating. And I think that can be particularly relevant as government because people often make big assumptions about kind of all the, all the things that you can do. And that's also true of a big nonprofit or a small nonprofit. If you can 
bring people in to help them understand what you do and don't have access to, what you do and don't control, then you can actually, it's, it's a great way to manage their expectations and to also then work with them to say, if we can't do that, what can we do that would be of service and of value? Um, so I, 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 you know, I am a very big advocate in making sure that clients are right in that process. And, and as you've said, it, it doesn't have to necessarily be uh, that they are in the room as you're making all the key decisions, but that you have surveyed them, that you have brought their voice into, into the room in some way, shape or form. Sometimes the resistance I'll hear around interviewing or surveying or having focus group with clients, and I'm sure you've probably heard this as well, the organization will say, well, we tried that five years ago and no one showed up. Or we sent out a survey link and only two people took it. So we're just wasting our time. Now, I have some pretty clear thoughts about how to respond, but what do you say when an organization tells you that? Well, I think, you know, you're probably not trying hard enough if that's that's the answer. I mean, I think I'm a big fan of that sort of mantra, clear the path, right? You should be making it as easy and as appealing if, uh, to engage with you as possible. So, you know, if you need to serve snacks, serve snacks. If you, you know, you need to be out there where your clients are, you need to be giving them a reason to do that. I think one of the really interesting things with surveys, it's always good to ask a question, do you think anything will happen as a result of this survey? Um, because that can also be a big factor in participation. If people have participated in a survey that your organization has conducted before and they haven't seen any change, and it may not be you, it may actually be that they've participated in other surveys and they haven't seen a change, then that will also really shift their willingness to engage. So you also need to understand um, how have they perceived the experiences of engaging with you in the past and what has happened off the back of that, which I think is also a really important point because communicating what's happening about your strategic planning process through the process, I think is really important. So as you described, if you've got a small working group, you know, eight to 10 people, your process is, is you know, maybe you'll have a couple of full days where you're doing planning, but actually your process is going to take place over a couple of months. And what communication are you doing with people along that journey? You know, so letting them know that you're starting a process, letting them know that you're gathering input, but also feeding back to them what you're hearing and what you're learning so that they really have a sense of being heard and listened to. Um, so, yes, I think the onus is on you as an organisation to go and get that information. And if you need to knock on people's doors, if you need to sit with them at the end of their services, you know, there are a whole lot of reasons. And, and I think the other reason I've sometimes heard from people is the clients that we serve may have difficulty communicating. I mean, many of, you know, many times uh, groups are serving people who, you know, literally may not be able to communicate verbally, uh, might be animals, right, who, who, who don't have a voice, in which case you need to kind of find a proxy, you need to engage with carers, you need to find some way. But if you can't ask the question, how do we understand what our clients want? And you don't feel like you've got a way of answering that question. You always struggle to do your planning. Mm -hmm. And I'll share with you, oftentimes in those stakeholder surveys, especially when it's not a client, I often like to include the question, do you know someone who's been served by the organization? And every now and then I'll get pushback on that question. But really what I'm trying to gauge is how close are you to the work of the organization? And just because you're not close to the actual work doesn't mean that your opinion's not valid, but it helps us understand where your opinion's coming from. So oftentimes funders will say, I don't know anybody, but it's 
not at all surprising, for example, to have a board member or a community leader say, oh, yeah, I know six people who have gotten served by the organization in the last couple of years. And now you know that even if they've not been, they, they have a different perspective on the organization than someone who knows no one who's been served. Oh, I think that's a great, a great inclusion. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, what's happening anyway is that sort of conversation is happening by proxy you, all the time with your board, right? I heard from, you know, my brother-in-law who said that their experience was terrible. Therefore, we have to, you know, change this. And if you're not doing that in a more systematic, structured way, you're often making quite big decisions on what may be maybe really representative information, but it might not be. And so, yeah, I mean, the, 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 and I think the other thing is you actually need to start to systematize that, right, as an organization. Um, and I often talk to uh, organizations about thinking about that right from the outset. I'm obsessed with outcomes. And, you know, as, as I talk about, and I know this is a lot of your work as well, so much of the strategic planning process is about really getting clear about the outcomes that you're trying to achieve for your clients. And by forcing yourself to go through that process, you then need to be asking yourself the question of how are we going to track those? And so, so much of it is also making sure that you're setting yourself up in such a way that you can follow up with clients that you've provided a service to, you know, you are um, getting an email address or in some cases, if you're serving clients who have, um, who might not have access to those, you're actually helping them, you know, you're giving them an email address that you can stay in touch with them. Uh, kids in foster care, for example, or families, um, you know, you're actually thinking about that question of how do we stay in touch and follow up? Because if you don't do that, then you have no way of knowing uh, if your services are really having that impact that you want them to have. And that's why we're all in this game, right? We're all interested in the impact. I actually think that is one of, the biggest impacts that a lot of organizations experience from strategic planning is it makes them take a step back and go, oh, what data does our management, what data does our governing board look at on a regular basis? How do we collect it and what should we be looking at? And, and I think there are certainly client metrics, but one of the things I'm often amazed by is part of the environmental scan process will often take the financials for the last three to five years and do an analysis. And then when we present this analysis, typically, and by the way, it looks different for every organization. Sometimes, you know, when we see, we'll see some things and then will make us go, oh, you know, we, you know, we should do a uh, multi-year-over-year um, day, days of cash graph. And for another organization, we might say, oh, you know, we should do a multi-year-over-year um, accounts payable graph because there's something weird going on over here with the accounts payable. Um, but so it's also interesting because then when we present that data, oftentimes I'll have board members who say, how come we don't see graphs like this at every board meeting? And my response is, well, you could. You just have to decide that you want to see these and you have to invest in the resources to be able for some Someone to be able to produce them for you. That's so true. You know, I think boards often engage in in the arguably the wrong things in a board discussion, but they're doing that because that's the information they have. So, you know, if you've ever been in a board meeting and somebody's kind of focusing or fixating on, you know, the stationary budget, it's because that's the way the information is presented and they're not getting access to other kinds of information. I, I've had that experience too, where sometimes the issue is information overwhelm, you know, so one board was being presented with pages and pages and pages of spreadsheets. And even though we were there to 
um, to kind of boost the whole performance management conversation just by taking what was there, doing some analysis, and then putting together some basic charts. And I'm a huge fan of charts. And the reason I like charts is because they help people access information and they help people access insights. And actually the act of producing a chart forces you to ask the question, just as you were saying, what's interesting about this information? What is telling me, what can I learn? So I, I, I completely agree with that. And I think you can get so much more from your board if you are presenting them with information in ways that make it easy for them to engage. So now I want us to nerd out about charts for just a minute. And I'm going to obviously do a little bit of a promo for your book, because in your book, Mission Control, you talk about charts and you talk about effective ways to make charts and things that are not as effective. And I also like it because you kind of put sample charts in columns and you have a check over one column and X over other columns. I told you, by the way, I did re actually reread your book in preparation for this conversation. And, and sorry, listeners, she's smiling at me. So I just had to remind her, I really did reread the book. But I love that. So I'd love for us to talk about charts. And there's a couple things that I've started doing in the last few years over and above and it's made a world of difference but I, first I really want to hear like like what are some of the big things when you think about charts and effective charts that people should be doing oh it's such a great question yeah and I am definitely a bit of a chart nerd um the first thing is there should be one message per chart that's really important loads of people try to kind of cram everything in there you've got to keep it simple. Um, so one message per chart. The other thing is that, again, and it, these are all kind of of a theme around keeping it simple. You want to make the chart as easy to read as possible. Um, I, I, I've now also become much more aware of um, accessibility considerations with charts. So, you know, bearing in mind that people are maybe colorblind, um, maybe visually impaired. So, you know, how do you think about ways that make um, charts really easy to read? One of the ways that you can do that, for example, uh, I'll, I'll just talk about a pie chart, but it's true for other charts, is making sure that any labels are right next to the information. Um, often, you know, you might have one of those pie charts, there's 52 different colors, you print it out and it's in gray on your printer, and then you've got this legend that, you know, and you have no idea what's connected to what. So putting the, and you can always easily do that, you know, in almost any kind of software these days, you can just with a, a quick flick, you can work out where the, where the information is going to sit, but putting it right next to it, especially true with line graphs too, you know, which are kind of crisscrossing over the top of each other and you're trying to follow the line. Um, so really making sure that you label that endpoint of, of what's that referring to. I mean, they're, they're probably, if, if I only had to pick a few, they are some of the the absolute winners. And then the other thing I guess is um, if you're thinking about a time series, and so, you know, you talked about going back and doing a retrospective analysis on, you know, what's happened to cash flow or, or um, other things on the financials, it can be really useful to, to overlay that with the events that coincided, you know, so if you've had a, a big dip in cash flow, what, what was going on at that time? So just a little call out box that kind of talks a little bit about some of the things that happened at that time can really, really bring that information to life. I mean, those are my top few. I, I love that. And I'll share with you one of the things that I took away after reading your book 
five years ago or four years ago or something like that was to start on those pie charts to start to move my labels into the slices of pie. But then the other thing that I started to do, if it's a little tiny sliver because it's 1% or 2% of the pie, I wouldn't even label it. And it's funny because every now and then a group will say, well, what's that? What's that little tiny sliver gray? I'm like, it's not labeled because it's not important. It's less than 1%. You don't need it. Like if it was important, I'd have a different type of chart and I would show you what that was. Yes. Yes, that's right. And I think the other thing is, you know, I actually learned this from a university course in um, how to present. And I've been lucky. I mean, I've had people teach me this stuff over the years. We spent a lot of time at McKinsey talking about this. You know, we had a book on fantastic charts, like, um, but I and I did a university course on on a kind of and we we spent a lot of time looking at bad graphs. And one of the things that people often do is they they get excited by the stuff that's in there. So three dimensional stuff, usually, unless you're actually trying to represent three dimensions, can make it much more difficult to read. So if you've got a people love three D pie charts because it kind of makes it look a bit cooler, but that's actually really distorts things because it tilts it on an angle, and so things that look big. When, you know, when you're kind of looking at it, which is exactly what you're trying to understand. You're just trying to say, what's the majority? You know, a pie chart is to answer the question, what's the big bucket? What's the little bucket? Like that's sort of the only question you're really trying to answer with that. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a really, a really good point. I'll also share with you, for me, one of the other game changers in the last couple of years around charts. Admittedly, this, is, this does not make it accessible for people that are colorblind. And I fully acknowledge this. But as an example, a multi-year income expense net chart. So, you know, each of those lines are already a different color. But then what I'll do is I'll go into, after I export it into PowerPoint, I'll go in and I will change the number call-out boxes. So like, oh, this is $1 million, this is $1.2 million. So to the same color as the line that it's associated with. And and the reason is so oftentimes, especially if income and expense is close, those numbers all just jumble up. And so now you can go, okay, green line, green number goes with the green line. Orange line, orange number goes with the orange line. And it just makes it so much more readable. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think that's right. And I think, I mean, I guess the, the if you're not sure, you know, and you haven't spent a lot of time with charts, what you're trying to do is you're trying to say, how can I make the information and the insight leap off the page? Um, and so, you know, in the book, I talk a lot about testing your messages. Um, you know, so at the end of your strategic planning process, you want to be able to articulate that story and that plan to lots of people. Uh, and my kind of go-to device is to check with somebody who is a child or a non-native English speaker, does this make sense? Um, because that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to communicate clearly. And, you know, it's such a good forcing mechanism. I had somebody who taught me, I'm a, I really hate jargon because jargon is confusing and obfuscating and it makes it people, difficult for people to engage. So no acronyms, no jargon. Um, but also because somebody said to me, you know, if you, can't, if you can't explain it clearly, then you don't understand it. So it's also that process of kind of engaging with the data, how I present this, you're actually learning more about it yourself. You're actually, you're actually really kind of getting in and understanding the insights that your own information has to, to share with you. Right, right. So I kind of walk down this divergent path of nerding on charts. I do definitely want us to talk as well about goals because one of the things I think that you and I are both pretty passionate about is that strategic planning should result in really focused goals. Absolutely. I think uh, one of my um, 
One of the great tragedies um, for many of us in the nonprofit sector, and I'm sure uh, listeners will, will find some familiarity in this, is the hours that we have spent at different points in our careers sitting in a room wordsmithing a mission statement. Um, and when you think back on how impactful those hours were, you'd probably like to get them back and do something different with them. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, and as, as part of an exact, as I was researching and developing the book, I, I wanted to pull out real life mission statements to kind of give some examples of, of what I mean by what you really shouldn't be aiming for in your strategic planning process. And there were just so many, you know, it was so easy to do. Um, the UN had like three pages or it was UNHCR, I think had three pages at that point in time. I'm sure it's pithier now, but um, kind of mission statements by committees don't drive impact. What drives impact is getting really clear and converging on something that you want to talk about, either you, you want to achieve. And I talk about it as a spine tingling goal. Mm -hmm. It really should be something that you, and, and almost, I mean, this is a bit woo woo, but in my experience, when you're in the room and you've, you've done all the work, you know, you've, you've gotten the facts, you've done the research, you've got your charts together and you've had that discussion and you've brainstormed and thought about all the different, you know, possibilities, there is a point at which there's a kind of magic, you know, there's a little sort of energy in the room that happens when you converge on that goal and there's a kind of a, yeah, this is it. And partly it is that sense of that spine tingling because it gets you out of bed in the morning. Um, and I talk about some examples um, of organisations that I've worked with and others that I haven't. Um, so the 100,000 Homes campaign uh, was... Uh, you know, a really catalytic moment in an organisation that moved from housing over a 20-year period, 7,000 people, to housing 100,000 chronically homeless people. And the goal itself was an absolutely critical step in that process. Um, I also talk about target zero for smallpox. And um, I know that, you know, for many other organisations uh, that that resonates as well. So this this sense of being very clear, both in numerical terms and in impact terms, what you want to achieve. Um, I also talk to people about the fact many organisations struggle with the idea of prioritising. Um, and so, you know, the title of the book is Mission Control. Missions do get out of control. They get out of control for a bunch of different reasons. Um, they do, they get out of control because we're chasing funding. You know, funding's always tight. So we go where the funding is. We add services and activities that may or may not actually be core to what we're best at. Um, we, as people, I think, find it hard to say no. And I think that's really important because one of the things that you want to think about with your goal is that if you achieve that goal, you can always move on to something else. You know, so prioritization is not about saying, no, we'll never do something. It's about saying when you are going to do something. And it's about saying, this is the goal we're going to bring forward and we're going to focus on. Um, and the reason I am so obsessed with the idea of a, a kind of a single goal is there is so much research to show that people and organizations that try to take on too many goals end up achieving none of them, right? We've all had that experience with kind of a very ambitious set of uh, New Year's resolutions, for example. Um, but when you get really clear about one big tantalizing spine tingling goal that the whole organization can get behind, that's when the magic starts to happen. It gives people clarity. It simplifies decision-making. 
Um, so yes, I'm a huge, huge fan. And I'll be honest, it does not come naturally to me. I'm, I'm, I'm myself very, you know, I have lots of ideas. I, I ping off in different directions. And so it's part of the reason, um, that I've, I've come to see how important this is. And I've just seen it time and time again in organizations and leaders who really change the world that you, you can always trace back to a point at which they really set a very clear goal. And it's funny, like, I often think of it as like this big, bold goal. And like you, I pretty much say you can only have one of those. And every now and then I'll work with a group and what they'll try to do is take two very different goals that probably are actually mutually exclusive and mash them into one. And I'm like, no, this is not Glee Club. You can't mash this into one goal and make this work. You really have to choose what you want to do as an organization. If the two goals are mutually exclusive, if you're not achieving A on the way to B, then you got to figure out what you're going to do. It's so true because, you know, strategy is about making choices and, and that's why it's tough because that thing about it's hard to say no. So many of us who are drawn into the sector are drawn because we see the need and we, we know what needs to be done. I mean, the other thing that often stops people um, converging on a clear goal or can hold them back is that they haven't done the work to really um, identify the root cause of the issue that they're addressing. So often organizations get started with addressing a symptom. So, you know, it might be a food bank and I've worked with food banks who, um, you know, saw that people were hungry. We, how will we meet it? We'll meet that need through the provision of food. And then as they start to understand the issue more deeply, they then start to add more and more services. So then they start to do, you know, career counseling services and, you know, um, provide homeless services but they never kind of go back and say, hey, we've added all these things on, you know, which of the things is most effective at actually addressing the issue we're trying to, to get to. And I think it's okay for organisations. It's actually not just okay, but they really should be giving themselves the space and permission to, you know, to do that pairing back and to actually it's okay to move towards root, root cause um, you know, if you've started as a food bank, but you actually think that the the biggest bang for buck is is in finding people careers, and you think you're really good at that, that's okay to focus on that. Um, you can let services go, um, because often, in so many times, there are, there are other organisations who are doing that anyway. So, like, I'm a really big advocate of um, not just finding where the gap is in terms of the need and the thing that's going to be most impactful, but also looking deeply at yourself and saying, what are we best place to do. Um, you know, so when you've got, as you said, the, the competing goals, right? People trying to mush the two together. That's a great time for an organization. And I'm sure this is exactly what you do with them, but to, to ask themselves honestly, are we the best at this? You know, are we in the space that we're operating of, of these two, which ones are we actually uniquely positioned? And especially if you're a relatively small organization, you know, there's a lot of quarter million dollar or even five million dollar organizations that are really ambitious and they want to do those five big things. But really, it comes down to one goal. And and I know you were just talking about pairing back services. And one of the things that I often think about is, you know, pairing down services is necessary there probably are also partner organizations that would be happy to absorb the services that you want to spin off. Yes, exactly. And I think that that process, um, you know, you, you started out asking who should be involved and you, you talked about the environmental scan as well. Um, it is so ridiculous that we don't do as 
enough of this. I mean, I think there's a lot more stuff happening in the sector. There's a lot more collective impact efforts where organisations are getting together and much more explicitly talking about how they can connect and collaborate. Um, but it still never surprises me. Oh, sorry, it still never ceases to surprise me the extent to which when you talk to people, you say, when was the last time you spoke to, you know, organisation X who's really in your space? So I think that's exactly right, that environmental scan to understand who else is out there, what services are they currently providing? And you really want to focus your efforts and energies in on the gaps and the areas that you're really good at. And you're right. And I've seen that happen. You, you can absolutely, and you can even roll staff in, you know, so if you've got special staff who are serving those areas, there are organizations and you can roll funding. I mean, I, that, I, I know for some people that would seem like an absolutely horrifying thing to do, but many people will tell you, yeah, we kind of feel like that program is sort of a drain. You know, we're doing it because we got the grant and we, we've got to deliver on the grant, but you know, it's just, it's kind of a little bit off to one side and, and people know, you know, they, they know those programs that don't really fit with the core of who they are, what they represent and what they're best at. So you're right. There are, there are really, there are really great ways of rolling out of those services in a way that doesn't have, mean you have to leave clients, staff or funders kind of on their own. Right. Right. Well, Liana, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, I, I am so sorry because I spent so much time talking about beautiful charts. So <laughs> I still have to make sure I ask you an off-the-map question. And listeners, there's already been a couple like this today that I've done where I'm like, eh, this question is probably adjacent or maybe even right on the edge of the map. But my off-the-map question for you is I understand that you are working on a big climate change project right now, and I'd love for you to tell us about it. Yeah, absolutely. So I was in the States for a long time and then I moved back to Australia and um, you would probably be aware that in October, November, December, January last year, we were in the most extraordinary bushfire season we have ever um, lived through. And at that time I was working in education and we were thinking about how we um, would close schools and evacuate students in the middle of, of you know, the, the country on fire. And I decided I needed to go back into climate change. But I have been out of the field for a while and I have a lot of questions. And so the work that we're doing, um, it's a project called Common Ground on Climate. Uh, not unlike in the States, uh, climate has become really um, partisan, really politicized. Uh, and that wasn't actually true in Australia about 10 years ago, which is when I was doing this work, but it has become really politicized, really polarized. Um, and I think that's prevented a lot of people from um, feeling comfortable in asking some basic questions. So we, uh, there's a group of us who are asking and answering basic questions. So we're, we're bringing in a whole series of experts um, and, and making that information accessible. So we're looking at what do people believe and why, and how is that different to different parts in different parts of the world? We're asking the question, what policies are countries uh, putting in place and how does that differ? So how is what Australia is doing different from what's happening in the States, different from what's happening in Europe? And then we're asking if there is one big idea, won't surprise you, one big idea that people could rally behind and so instead of kind of placards that say climate action now or, you know, protect our jobs, um, the debate has been set up in Australia as, a, as kind of economic versus an environmental, which I think is a false dichotomy. 
Um, so if there was a, a big idea that we could get everyone to rally behind, what would that be? And then what would be the best mechanism to actually support and drive change? So those are questions that I'm really interested in the answers to. I know other people are as well. So we're making that journey public. The, the interviews with experts are public. The, the synthesis from books is public. So all of that is accessible. Um, and all that information can be found on uh, commongroundonclimate.org. Wow. And when does it go public? So it's going to go public. Um, the first round of interviews and things will go public within the next month. So uh, we're now, it'll be public by the 1st of June. That's awesome. So certainly, and I think I think this episode airs in July, so listeners get it while it's hot. Um, and so it sounds like it's going to be on uh, commongroundonclimate.org. That's right. Well, and Leon, I just have to say thank you for doing that work. You're right. It is definitely partisan and in some ways even polarizing work. But if we can't find common ground, n- not, just, not just humans, but this planet is in a really bad place if we cannot find common ground. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. No, thank you for saying that. I mean, I think that's right. Complex social issues need everyone at the table. Right. As we were saying before. Well, Leanna, thank you so much for joining us today. And listeners, I always want to make sure that you know how to reach out to our guest. And Liana's website is missioncontrolbook.com. That's missioncontrolbook.com. When you go there, she has tons of tools and tips that can help you change the world. Um, Kind of what my bullet point says is help leaders change the world, but you're a leader. So help you change the world. Also, you can download the first chapter of her book. So, you know, sometimes you think, "Mm, I might want to get that book. I don't know how good it is. Well, first of all, listeners, I've already told you, I've reread this book a number of times. So clearly, I think it's good. But if you don't trust me, then download the first chapter of the book and read it. I feel pretty confident that you're only going to get about halfway through that chapter before you go over to Amazon or Barnes & Noble, or wherever it is you buy your books, and you order the book. And then do not forget to make sure you check out commongroundonclimate.org. Our listeners are very progressive listeners, and I know that you are someone who cares about the climate and who cares about the earth and our ability to continue to live on it. So please check out commongroundonclimate.org. Liana, thank you again for being on the podcast today. Thank you, Dolph. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. And listeners, if you found this conversation helpful, well, maybe you do not love the piece on charts and graphs, but I really like charts and graphs. If you found this conversation helpful, there is another episode I really think you should check out, and that is episode 192, Measuring Impact with Alan Mackey. And in this episode, in that episode, he really lays out some of the things that you need to be doing to easily measure impact. So it means you're not devoting 33 or 35% of your budget to measuring your impact, but knowing that you're actually achieving that one focused goal that we were talking about today. And that, listeners, is our show for the day. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And I always got to give you the disclaimer. I'm sorry, the lawyers make me do it. I'm not an accountant nor an attorney, and neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This should not surprise you. When you go to the website, you'll see that we don't provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This podcast is for informational purposes only. And guess what? That means you shouldn't rely on it for tax, legal, and accounting advice. 
Let me just be really frank with you. If you or your organization find yourself in a place where that's what you need, please, please do yourself a favor. Find a credentialed, licensed professional and reach out to them. And if you're not sure what type of professional you should be talking to or you don't know someone in your community, you can always reach out to me. If I know someone, I am happy to make the connection.